we really need those very strong standards around hydrogen production. Carbon intensity standards that ensure that hydrogen that's being invested in is the lowest emitting possible and is aligned with our climate goals because hydrogen production assets are long-lived. If you invest in them today, they're going to stay with you for a while. So you want them to be low emitting and aligned with climate goals, but also public health goals. We have to make sure that we're not creating resources that will harm our communities. Hydrogen, a miracle fuel for delivering deep decarbonization or an overhyped climate solution that could lock in fossil fuel use, or is it both? Whatever it is, it's getting a lot of attention. If you Google hydrogen news, you'll see no shortage of headlines. China publishes its first national hydrogen strategy, a $1 billion hydrogen plant to be built in the UAE. You'll see things about the United States hydrogen hub and the largest green hydrogen production plant in the world coming to Utah. And you'll read about the overall, quote, hydrogen boom, which frankly may not be the best choice of words. Well, we're talking about all of that on this episode. The good, the bad, and the policy driving the hydrogen economy. Welcome to Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and we're back today with my co-host, Shane Skelton, an advisor on energy infrastructure and environmental policy issues at Boundary Stone Partners, and as I like to say, our expert on all things happening on Capitol Hill. Hello, Shane. How are you today? Doing well, Julia. This is a fun one. I think, you know, we've all been, been talking about this for quite a while, and hydrogen has been, you know, 10 years away for at least 20 years, and it seems like... <laughs> getting close to at least some sort of viable hydrogen coming into the marketplace. So a lot of activity this week, and I'm happy to be here with you and Rachel. Right. In a moment, we will be joined by Rachel Fackery. She's the Senior Advocate for the Climate and Clean Energy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, where she leads the hydrogen and energy innovation portfolio. So we'll bring Rachel into the conversation in just a moment. But before we get into hydrogen, indeed an issue we've been meaning to tackle, we'd be remiss to ignore the major clean energy announcement from President Biden just on Monday. So first up, let's do a quick breakdown of the latest news. Support for political climate is provided by Fish Tank PR. From combating climate change to defunding oligarchs, the transition to a clean energy economy cannot come fast enough. Solutions abound in the energy transition, but there's also more noise every day. The Fish Tank team brings together deep industry expertise with a love for storytelling. Fish Tank does more than just generate interest from top-tier publications and best-in-class trade media. They help connect brands with the right decision-makers and stakeholders. Find out the difference Fish Tank can offer at fishtankpr.com. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. On Monday, June 6th, President Biden signed an executive order to boost domestic clean energy manufacturing and remove barriers to solar deployment. 
Specifically, the White House announced it will authorize the Defense Production Act to accelerate domestic production of clean energy technologies, including solar panel parts. It will boost Made in America clean energy with federal procurement in an effort to spur additional domestic solar production. And they're going to delay the implementation of new tariffs on solar panels imported from Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Vietnam for two years. Now, this is a big deal. We recently had the Solar Energy Industries Association head, Abby Hopper, on the podcast to talk about what's at stake with these potential new tariffs. And it's caused all kinds of disruption in the U.S. solar market. So the move from the Biden administration comes as an effort to reboot U.S. solar deployment, which took a major nosedive earlier this year amid a Commerce Department investigation into whether Chinese solar panel manufacturers are routing products through these Southeast Asian countries to avoid paying tariffs. Again, all this caused all kinds of volatility and ultimately started putting U.S. climate goals at risk. So President Biden signed the executive order amid massive outcry against this Commerce Department investigation. We saw letters from senators, House members, governors, environmentalists, solar developers, and others. And so the executive order has been incredibly well received by the clean energy community overall. But of course, there are some tricky issues at play. Jane, I want to get your thoughts here because many Americans want more domestic manufacturing of all kinds. And so the argument for more tariffs is that they will prevent countries like China from flooding the market with cheap solar panels and imposing tariffs will allow the domestic manufacturing market to grow. So how do you think about this announcement from the Biden administration? Are they walking that line between no tariffs deployment now, but yes, we need to support the domestic industry uh, here at home? It's really tough to say, Julia, because I don't really fully understand what this announcement is and what it isn't yet. Uh, Starting with the DPA, I'm not sure they have the funding available to do the things they want to do. So if there are some, you know, procurement tools they can use, that'll be great. You know, I probably as much as anyone, maybe more than most, want to see domestic manufacturing of solar, uh, heat pumps, electrolyzers for hydrogen are also covered under the order, building insulation. Um, I want to see all of this work. I want to see it work quickly and I want to see it scale uh, as, as dramatically as it can. So I think the, the belief and sort of the, the goals behind the announcements are great. I'm not sure what tools they have to effectuate them. The tariffs are a little more interesting because I've long thought that we need you know, some sort of, I think they use the word bridge. Uh, we have a lot of technologies that we can manufacture here, including solar, of course, including storage technologies, any other technology that includes sourcing and refining critical minerals. But the reality of it is we can't flip that switch on today. And so you certainly want to reduce reliance on China. You want to reduce reliance on any sort of overseas counterpart, especially an unfriendly one economically. Uh, But I'm kind of waiting to see what they say next. I don't fully understand exactly how they're going to execute on this strategy. So fully behind the intent, uh, not 100% clear on, on what happens next. Right. So I mentioned there's this Commerce Department investigation into China circumventing existing tariffs by going through these four other Southeast Asian countries with their solar products. That is still ongoing. And so if they decide to move forward with tariffs, they could still be coming down the line. But what this does, at least in the interim, is set this two-year reprieve from new tariffs. So take your point that that seems to be a little more tangible. Another thing I mentioned in that list is using federal procurement to spur additional domestic solar manufacturing. The question there is, I don't know what they're going to procure. All the solar panels are bought at this point because the threat of tariffs made everyone scramble to find domestic supply. So sort of some question marks around what exactly the federal government can do at this point in time to boost that further, given there's already no product available. And then your point on the Defense Production Act, the DPA, is a good one. 
they still have to find money for that. So where would that money potentially come from, Shane? What's the normal process for using the DPA to accelerate a national agenda like this? So there's a few different ways to fund each of these things. Uh, for procurement, a lot of that money actually, when it comes to energy, is going to come through operations and maintenance funds that are part of the annual appropriations legislation. Those are usually not no-year funds. So as you said, um, you could use procurement, but if you can't get the panels today, you'd really use that money to leverage future production, which falls outside of the fiscal year and may not be the best fit for appropriations unless Congress were to provide no-year funds. And no-year funds means that the funds are available until they're spent rather than only in that fiscal year, which is October 1st to September 30th. On the Defense Production Act, there's two different paths that I know of. One is there's an actual Defense Production Act account. And that account right now has a little bit less than $500 million in it. That account has been used for um, protective gear during the COVID crisis. It's been used for a number of things, but it doesn't have sufficient funding to do all the things that are called for in this announcement. So Congress could provide more funding to that account. Congress could you know, put money in the Defense Production Act account, and the president and the administration could use that as they see fit. So that's one route. The other route is that if Congress has authorized spending for a specific purpose, then you could use the Defense Production Act authorities to streamline that spending. So if there were a billion dollars that DOE was sitting on that Congress authorized for domestic manufacturing, you could direct that money to specific projects consistent with the order. What you could not do is take money that Congress authorized for a different purpose and redirect it because that would be in violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act, which basically says that you can't, the government can't spend money that Congress hasn't approved. So you could appropriate more dollars, you could put more money in the Defense Production Act account, or you could look for dollars that have already been authorized and or appropriated by Congress for purposes that align with the purpose of the order and try to redirect those funds to priority projects. Long story short, could they find the money? No, not without Congress. Not really. And I think Secretary Granholm acknowledged that uh, yesterday. Interesting. So big news. Um, I think another thing that's interesting about this news and the last thing we'll say on it is that it presents the need to deploy clean energy solutions as this kind of national imperative. It places it in this national security kind of framework to protect American interests. Of course, we know that fossil fuel markets are strained right now. So the idea of getting off of reliance of, in particular, these global fossil fuel markets um, would be helpful for consumers here at home. So using that framework is kind of interesting and something that a lot of environmental and clean energy climate activists have been calling for. And the executive order, as you noted, Shane, calls for not only expanding solar manufacturing, but also building insulation, heat pumps, equipment for making things like fuel cells, which we'll talk about more, and electrolyzers, as well as power grid infrastructure. So just finally on that, Shane, what does it mean to frame the deployment of these clean tech solutions in this kind of national security mobilization kind of lens? I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand, if any amount that we can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels is good for national security. I mean, we, we live in a global commodity market. So no matter how much we produce here at home, it doesn't make us independent of other you know global actors. So in a certain way, I would argue that deploying all of these clean technologies does indeed uh, harden national security. You know, it's not a weapon system by any means. And so it doesn't do what it needs to do tomorrow. But if we could be reliant on electrified end use appliances across the economy and we could use clean hydrogen for our manufacturing sector, um, we could use solar and, and other clean technologies to produce the electricity that feeds our grid. I mean, that could that that is a national security imperative for sure. 
Well, you mentioned hydrogen there. That's a perfect segue because one of the technologies I rattled off there is funding for electrolyzers, a technology that uses electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen through a process called electrolysis. So this is what we'll get into right now with our guest, Rachel Fakhry, who leads the Hydrogen and Energy Innovation Portfolio at NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council. She engages with international and domestic stakeholders in designing policy and regulatory frameworks to leverage hydrogen technology's potential to support deep decarbonization goals and to internalize the guardrails necessary to mitigate its risks. On a part-time basis, she is seconded with the UN High-Level Climate Champions, where she leads the organization's global green hydrogen strategy. Let's turn now to that interview. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining Political Climate. Thank you so much, Julia and Shane, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So the hydrogen debate has evolved a lot over the past several decades, with the shift in attention from applications for the auto industry. I remember here in California, the hydrogen highway and all of its promises to now really focusing, I think at least, on these hard to decarbonize sectors, such as energy intensive industries, trucks, aviation, et cetera. And there are a lot of different flavors of hydrogen, often differentiated by different colors. So you have gray, you have green, you have blue. So to kick us off here, Rachel, could you just walk us through what it means when we talk about the hydrogen economy? What are the different types of hydrogen and how are we going to use them, do you think? Absolutely. And I think the framing that you laid out makes a lot of sense. Um, Historically, hydrogen you know, interest in hydrogen has been more focused on the car applications, using it in automobiles. But this new wave hydrogen interest or hype or whatever you want to call it is very different, right? We are not, as you mentioned, talking about using hydrogen to really help us decarbonize and replace fossil fuels in those sectors that are very challenging to clean up. Uh, like aviation and steel and so on, where solutions that we know and are familiar with, like renewables, electrification, efficiency, may not be suitable. Hydrogen instead can provide a solution for those applications. And this has driven a lot of interest in deploying hydrogen and creating a market for it in those applications. In terms of its production, today hydrogen is mostly produced from fossil fuels, In the U.S., more than 95% of hydrogen that we use in our economy today is produced from natural gas because we use hydrogen currently in our economy, but it's a very niche industrial feedstock. We basically just use it or largely use it in the oil refining process, but also to produce agricultural fertilizer. So using hydrogen more widely as a climate solution has to start by cleaning up its own production process. And this is where we have been hearing of a number of clean hydrogen pathways are being posited and labeled by by way of colors. So we have blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, you know, we've been hearing pink and turquoise and so on and so forth. Each of those rely on a different pathway to produce hydrogen in a manner that is cleaner than how we produce it today. However, those colors, as I'm sure we'll get to, can be quite misleading because hydrogen production is complex. It can be highly emitting, absent standards and safeguards. And those colors tend to mask and simplify a lot of the very complicated dynamics that require close navigation and policies. Right. Not all hydrogens created equal. I think of you know, gray hydrogen as the pure fossil fuel-based product. And then there's blue hydrogen, which is fossil fuel-based hydrogen production combined with carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So there's those flavors in addition to the other colors you mentioned. It's a whole sorbet over there. Um, 
If you were to think about the potential for hydrogen, is there a broad number, again, recognizing there's these different types of what we think hydrogen could do for us in terms of reducing emissions? How do you think about framing how it can support our climate goals? That is the crux of the question, because theoretically, hydrogen can replace fossil fuels in a very wide range of applications. So it can replace gas to heat our buildings, to generate electricity, to produce various industrial feedstocks. It could also replace oil to power cars and trucks and aircrafts and ships. However, the crux of the issue is really, you know, what should hydrogen do, not what it could do? Because generally, hydrogen is an inefficient and generally costly resource because producing it and using it involves a series of energy conversions and losses that make it generally an unfavorable solution when you have alternatives. So when we look closely at those range of applications I just mentioned, many of those can be actually more efficiently and cost-effectively electrified. So for example... Uh, it is estimated that we would need up to five times more electricity to heat a home with hydrogen than to heat that same home with an electric alternative. So hydrogen is certainly best left for those applications that are very hard to electrify and that may not have better solutions. Generally, those will be your steel plants that require some molecule to produce steel from iron ore, your aircrafts and ships where you know, we don't have batteries that are large enough to propel those across, say, the Pacific or the Atlantic. Um, and hydrogen can, in contrast, provide that service, that energy that those equipments need. And other you know, more niche applications, those generally tend to make up about 15, 10-15% of total greenhouse gas emissions. So this is where hydrogen really can help and should be largely funneled. Yeah. So I think that brings back for me, you know, why didn't work in the auto sector really? You know, there were some attempts to bring hydrogen to passenger cars. Uh, but I know Eric Westhoff, one of the Canary Media editors, has been waiting for years to see one of the hydrogen fueling stations completed near where he lives. And Elon Musk, for instance, you know, the head of Tesla, talks about how it's a total waste in cars. So to your point, we're seeing it now, I think, move to these other sectors and we're seeing more and more focus. There was just the First Movers Coalition, which is a U.S. government initiative supported by U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, engaging the private sector in deep decarbonization of these hard sectors to tackle, including the ones you just mentioned. And hydrogen is one of the main focuses of that effort. So we are seeing more attention. Shane, I'm curious, you brought this to the podcast as something you really wanted to cover. What are the flashpoints you're seeing in the hydrogen debate today from specifically a policy perspective? Yeah, I wouldn't say I see flashpoints so much. I think there's a lot of questions. I mean, one thing, you know, Rachel mentioned earlier, all the colors. I think we should just focus on identifying hydrogen by its emissions footprint. I think that would be a far simpler way to do it. Because, for example, how do you differentiate hydrogen that's, you know, made from an electrolyzer, but powered by the grid rather than powered by renewable resources? Um, if you are making blue hydrogen, what's your life cycle emission structure there? But I think if we identify hydrogen by its GHG footprint um, and kilograms of CO2 per kilograms produced, I think we can have just a more honest conversation about where it makes sense to use it, where it doesn't, and how it should be produced and used. So I think that's something that people need to wrap their heads around rather than trying to memorize you know, 17 different colors. I also think that, as Rachel said, we need to really focus on not what can it be used for, but where does it make sense? Like building electrification is easy. So using hydrogen as 
a fuel source to displace natural gas and, and building applications, in my view, uh, isn't very wise. I think electric uh, vehicles in the, the passenger vehicle size, uh, they make sense, right? I drive one. I know a lot of people that drive them. They work. They're easy. Uh, it's a seamless transition. I really want to see hydrogen displace diesel fuel in heavy shipping, and that could be in freight shipping and also uh, vessels, the cargo vessels. I'd like to see it displace gas uh, for heating and industrial processes. I'd like to see clean hydrogen displace more emissions intense hydrogen or other chemicals that are used in agriculture, because I think those are areas where there isn't really an obvious alternative solution to decarbonize. So those are the things I'd like to see. Questions I have are, what do we need from an infrastructure perspective? What makes sense? Like We can't just as I understand it, and I'd love to be corrected if I'm wrong, I don't think we can just repurpose gas infrastructure to move hydrogen around. So I think the hubs that DOE announced this Monday, and I know we'll talk about a little bit, those will be interesting because the goal there is to find sort of a closed loop regional hydrogen solution that can connect to a larger hydrogen network that would be coast to coast, as I understand it. But I'm just not exactly sure what the best way to move it from place to place, from region to region is. I do think if we can co-locate clean hydrogen production with some of those heavier emitting industries, that'll be really interesting. And I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of the stakeholders want to get there. And like I said, Julie, I think from a policy perspective, just identifying what is an acceptable amount of CO2 emissions per kilogram of hydrogen production. And then let's solve that problem. Let's get there because I think people are, are motivated to do it. There's a lot of government money available to do it. I think industry more than ever wants to decarbonize, even high emitting industries that used to fight, you know, rules, regulations or other restrictions on their emissions want to be able to say that they're manufacturing products with very low or little uh, zero embedded carbon. So I I don't see as much as contentious issues in the policy sphere as much as just questions to be answered and problems to be solved. Shane, what do you think the U.S. can do on the policy side to support green hydrogen or or hydrogen more broadly going forward? Are there specific things in, say, the reconciliation bill that we can look at? What does it look like now, that policy landscape? Yeah, so I think there's two primary components to this. One is execute on the hub program the right way. I mean, the worst thing in the world would be to spend, that's, of course, an exaggeration, for the (laughs) hydrogen economy, the worst thing in the world would be to spend $8 billion on projects that either don't work, don't achieve their goals, aren't economically viable when it's over, and don't actually serve their purpose, which is decarbonizing some sort of industrial process that has high emissions. So make sure to execute properly on the money that's already available. And the second piece, which no one's talking about a whole lot, is offtake markets. There aren't a lot of offtakers right now. DOE has set a goal for clean hydrogen, so that zero emissions hydrogen, to be under $2 per kilogram. And that's going to be critically important to achieve. Whether you can achieve that within the next five or 10 years is unknowable. But if you put tax credits and other incentives in place that make clean hydrogen affordable for off-takers and end users while we scale electrolyzer technology to bring the overall cost down, that'll be huge too. Because at the end of the day, even if we have the technology, the know-how, and the willingness to create and produce tons of clean hydrogen, There just isn't a robust enough offtake market right now, even across all the industries that we discussed, to buy it at five, six dollars a kilogram. And so execute, demonstrate, um, you know, the the viability of the hydrogen economy through the hubs and then also find different ways, including tax incentives to make hydrogen, clean hydrogen attractive to offtakers, especially in those tough to decarbonize industries. Those two levers alone would, would go a very, very long way in accelerating this transition. I fully agree with that. I think the demand side is not getting as much attention as it should. 
There are two ways of you know, ramping up green hydrogen is one, focusing on reducing the cost of it on the supply side. Tax credits would do that. That's fine. But I don't think this is the main lever. I think the main lever is going to be focusing on the demand side of things. How do we start creating the, the dependable demand for green hydrogen in those sectors where it could be needed most? Because even if we get to a very cheap level of green hydrogen, this does not guarantee at all that those sectors are going to use it because it's more complex than that. There are assets that need to be refurbished, new investments, trade issues. So we really need to start leaning in on this demand creation side of things by way of, say, you know, procurement standards. So, for example, you discussed the procurement announcement that President Biden put out on Monday. The federal government can start procuring green steel for green infrastructure projects. That creates dependable demand, that creates cost reductions and de-risking of financing and so on. We can start spurring demand for ships, for instance, to start decarbonizing part of their fuel. That will indirectly spur that demand for green hydrogen. So that is what I'm hoping to see in the next few months, is that natural uh, evolution towards focusing on offtake, focusing on demand, more so than just on reducing supply costs, which are, of course, interesting, but I don't think should be the main lever in the hydrogen economy. Political Climate is supported by Fishtank PR. Fishtank is a PR and marketing firm that was listed as one of Inc. Magazine's 5,000 fastest-growing businesses in America last year and is widely recognized for its work within the booming cleantech and broader sustainability sector. Fishtank helps companies demonstrate their commercial viability and clients include those that are backed by major VC firms, tech leaders, and private equity. With so many new entrants to the industry, Fishtank helps tailor your corporate message to the right audience at the right time. They put in the time on media outreach to deliver meaningful results. To learn more about Fishtank's approach to renewable energy, sustainability, and clean tech, go to fishtankpr.com. That's F-I-S-C-H tankpr.com. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Lots of levers, lots of colors, <laughs> lots to think about. Well, let's go to that announcement you just referenced there. This week, just before we recorded, the Department of Energy announced a notice of intent to use $8 billion in funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to develop regional clean hydrogen hubs across America. The hubs will centralize the production, processing, storage, and delivery and use of clean hydrogen to help accelerate the use of hydrogen as a clean fuel overall. The DOE said in its announcement that hydrogen is crucial to the administration's goal of a 100% clean electricity grid by 2035 and net zero carbon emissions more broadly by 2050. 
Now, the funding for these hubs will also support the DOE's ongoing initiative to help drive down the cost of hydrogen production, transport utilization, etc. In 2021, DOE also launched the Hydrogen Shot to cut the cost of clean hydrogen to $1 per 1 kilogram of clean hydrogen in one decade. So, one, one, one. Now, not all the hubs are expected to be powered by wind and solar, so using these clean, renewable electricity sources to create the hydrogen fuel. And that doesn't sit particularly well with green hydrogen advocates who've warned against the reliance on blue hydrogen, these fossil fuel-based alternatives. So Rachel, can you walk us through, A, the hub concept, what does it mean to have this announcement coming, and what do you think about the types of hydrogen the DOE is supporting? All critically important questions, Julia. Um, the hub concept or the $8 billion that were appropriated to DOE to create these hubs were appropriated as part of the bipartisan infrastructure law that passed uh, in, in November 2021. Um, and this is not a new notion, this notion of creating hydrogen hubs. This is kind of an inspired notion from global efforts that are also attempting to create quote-unquote, hydrogen valleys across the, the, the country or the world, rather, which is the same concept as a, as a hydrogen hub, i.e. a center where hydrogen is produced and used extensively uh, so as to create economies of scale and really get the market going. And it's going to be, it's going to play a very meaningful role in how the clean hydrogen market shapes up in the U.S. So DOE has, you know, the potential to really influence that. And that is one of the main reasons why we're seeing states just show a ton of interest in being selected as hubs. So we're seeing states bundled together in partnerships to essentially apply for a hub together. Other states are doing a unilateral state-specific approach, also expressing interest to be selected. So we are seeing a ton of activity around those hubs considering the stakes. And those hubs, if done right, can actually get the market going in a very good way. Because as Shane mentioned, we really need those very strong standards around hydrogen production, carbon intensity standards that ensure that hydrogen that's being invested in is the lowest emitting possible and is aligned with our climate goals because hydrogen production assets are long lived. If you invest in them today, they're going to stay with you for a while. So you want them to be low emitting and in line with climate goals, but also public health goals. We have to make sure that we're not creating resources that will harm our communities. That's one. And this is where DOE has a huge role to play in how it selects the hubs and the sort of standards that it subjects the hubs to in terms of production. That's one. Two, end uses are going to be critical. As we discussed earlier, hydrogen can do a lot of things. It should absolutely not do all those things. Uh, it can be a very wasteful solution for places like buildings and most of our cars and most of our power plants. So this is where DOE can really be selective in the type of applications that it invests in. Because we may need hydrogen for our steel plants, for our aviation sector, for our ships, maybe as a seasonal form of electricity storage. So DOE really needs to lean in behind those and prioritize them. But also there's a huge opportunity here to replace existing dirty hydrogen with cleaner forms, with, say, green hydrogen. This is a very no-regrets way of scaling up hydrogen, green hydrogen, getting cost reductions without creating new demand centers, so leveraging existing infrastructure. Really want to see DOE do that and leverage this opportunity. And then finally, do you want to touch on this infrastructure piece? Because, Shane, I fully agree with you. This is 
one of those areas that require a lot more assessment, a lot more studying, in particular as it relates to pipelines that would carry hydrogen. A lot of question marks around those pipelines. How many will we need? Do we really need a national network of pipelines or will they be more localized? Because hydrogen can be produced almost everywhere. Some locations will have a leg up, sure, but will it be a very concentrated resource like oil and gas? Probably not. So to what extent do we need those pipelines is a big question mark. But also hydrogen is an indirect greenhouse gas, which means that when it leaks from infrastructure, in particular from pipelines, it could warm climate if the leakage rate is very high. We still don't really know how to measure leakage. So we have to be careful right, around the type of infrastructure we built today. And this is, again, where DOE can play a big role. It can look for this co-location opportunity, which you mentioned, i.e. looking for production and demand for hydrogen to be closely located and minimize pipeline build-out, at least until we better understand the extent to which we need them and how to make sure that hydrogen leakage is kept in check. So could you just take a moment and paint a picture for me of what a hydrogen hub is? Like, what do we mean when that happens? Is it a literal building where all this is going down? Is it sort of the network of pipelines? Why are states competing for this? And what would it look like if it was executed in the cleanest possible way? Good questions. Um, a hydrogen hub, you can think of it as it, it could be a state, it could be a collection of states where hydrogen is produced and used to a good extent. So you would have hydrogen producing facilities, uh, but also demand center. So for example, a steel plant that would use the hydrogen, a port area, for example, that would also use hydrogen or hydrogen-based fuel in shipping, but also in port vehicles, right? Cargo vehicles and so on. Uh, possibly some transport infrastructure in the middle. So small pipelines or trucks that carry hydrogen because trucks can also carry hydrogen. So essentially it's a center where there's a hydrogen economy going between producers, users, and maybe transport infrastructure. And what is a good hub, right? I think a good hub is a hub where hydrogen is produced in the cleanest manner possible, right? Green hydrogen needs to be prioritized because it can be zero emitting. It does not have air pollution impacts if sourced from true renewable energy. And therefore, it is more aligned with our climate goals. It's a hub where hydrogen is used in those priority applications, those really hard to electrify applications that may not have alternatives. Um, and a hub, as of today, that does not rely on much transport infrastructure, because as I mentioned, we still there's a lot of uncertainties around transport infrastructure. Yeah, trucking a bunch of hydrogen around doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. And I think there are ways to leverage the existing natural gas pipelines, right? You can put some amount of hydrogen in there, but it's only to a certain extent. Is that right? That's correct. It's really important to remember that hydrogen and natural gas are two fundamentally different gases, because we sometimes hear a soundbite that is incorrect, and that is that hydrogen will be this smooth um, resource that will allow us to reuse existing infrastructure. And this sounds all great in theory, but when we look at the facts, it's actually much more complex than that. Hydrogen is a fundamentally different gas. As you mentioned, we can blend some of it in our existing infrastructure, but up to a certain level, no more than 15, 20%. There are even a lot of pilots across the country trying to test even what a 1% hydrogen would do to the system, what a 2%. So even this theoretical low limit of 15, 20% 
remains really theoretical because there's still a lot of testing around the impacts of hydrogen on the system, even at one and 2%. And then above, say, 15, 20%, there's strong consensus that we will need some major retrofitting application or retrofitting enterprises or efforts, which will come at a pretty significant cost. So this notion of repurposing infrastructure sounds great in theory, but a lot of question marks, a lot of uncertainties remain. And then this notion of you know, the climate risks of hydrogen leakage peers its head again because we don't know how to retrofit pipelines in a manner that can really contain hydrogen leakage well. So besides the techno-economics of all these retrofits that will be needed and the conversion of existing infrastructure, the climate impacts require a lot more assessment. Shane, can you describe what green hydrogen is just for anyone who doesn't know? And what would it mean for the deployment of renewable energy? Would it accelerate the clean energy resources we see across America and these hubs next to hydrogen because they're using that electricity? Or is it just going to leverage excess renewable electricity that's already on the grid system? What does green hydrogen look like? I don't think you can say it's leveraging excess green energy that's already on the grid because to be truly green hydrogen, as I understand the definition, It has to be produced by an electrolyzer, um, splitting water, as you mentioned, Julia, that has to be powered directly by renewable energy. So if it were to use excess energy already on the grid, the reality is you just can't trace an electron. Like you can say this grid is powered, you know, 36% of the the time by renewables and 64% of the time by natural gas or whatever, but electrons are fungible. And so I'm not arguing that there's no case to be made for powering electrolyzers off the grid, but if you're talking about green hydrogen in the sense that I think it's supposed to be defined, it would be a closed loop system where you have renewable energy directly powering the electrolyzer. So I think it would have to be separate and standalone from any grid. I'm not arguing that that's the only way forward, but I think that is the definition. Do I have that right, Rachel? You're putting your your finger on a really complicated dynamic So there are multiple ways of truly proving that you're being powered by 100% renewable electricity. What you laid out is certainly the most uh, straightforward way. It's an electrolyzer that is directly connected to a renewable facility, either co-located or just directly connected via a line, a transmission line. This is easy, straightforward. Clearly, it's 100% renewable energy-powered hydrogen. However... This is not the only way, right? And for example, the European Union is really leaning behind that and producing rules for a hydrogen facility that would be connected to the grid, but still be able to claim 100% renewable energy. And that is by way of signing a power purchase agreement with a new renewable facility that would come online. So you can think of it as an electrolyzer that connects to the grid, but brings a supply of wind and solar into the grid, even if it's not directly powered by it. And the notion being that electrolyzer will draw, you know, maybe dirty power from the grid, but at the same time, because you have this new renewable that was brought in, that will help offset those emissions. And that is a much more complicated system, which requires more rules around, you know, making sure that there is indeed that offsetting of emissions. And, and that, that seems to be a model that will be adopted quite extensively, uh, which is why we need very strong rules around making sure that you know, those PPAs that are being signed actually do make sure that the electrolyzer is clean and powered by 100% renewables. And as Rachel mentioned there, um, it's actually, that, that's a macro issue that needs solving uh, for a number of reasons. For example, 
there are large corporate consumers, um, data centers that want to be powered fully by renewable energy and have the capital and the will to enter those PPAs. And in the Southeast and the West, the U.S. doesn't currently have energy markets. So it's vertically integrated utilities that control those states. So as we start to delve into the details of some of these questions about how do you make sure that you're either yeah, powering directly with renewables or at least displacing fossils and other applications so that you're additive in a positive way, um, hopefully we can get some of those other states into these energy markets and, and accelerate the ability to enter PPAs and clean the grid from coast to coast. Interesting. I do want to go back to the DOE for just a moment because there was another recent announcement just in April around one of the biggest proposed hydrogen projects in the U.S. It's roughly $500 million in funding from the Department of Energy to make a $1 billion plus project closer to reality. And this is in Utah. Rachel, can you walk us through what this particular project would be and what kind of hydrogen it is? Absolutely. This is a loan guarantee um, announcement and the, the facility would largely be one of the biggest hydrogen storage projects in the world. Utah has um, a set of salt caverns that allow for the large-scale storage of hydrogen underground in those caverns. And the upshot or the, the, the compelling piece here is that those salt caverns would enable hydrogen storage for very long durations, you know, seasons, even years, at low cost. Uh, which would unlock some really interesting hydrogen uses. For example, uh, the use of hydrogen as a seasonal storage medium. So for example, the more renewable energy penetrates our grid over time as we decarbonize our economy, uh, we will likely have seasons where we'll have a lot of excess renewables. You know, For example, in the shoulder months where we have a lot of wind that goes largely unused, that could be used to produce hydrogen. The hydrogen can then be stored in those salt caverns for seasons at a time. And then when we're short on power and renewables in, say, January, where wind and solar are, are low, hydrogen can then be used to generate electricity. So it is a really interesting project because it has those broader implications and the kind of, it could help unlock a lot of those really interesting long-duration storage hydrogen applications. Well, it is interesting to see the DOE stepping up in this way. I know it's one of the bigger loans. I think it's the third uh, loan that um, Jigar Shah, who oversees the loan programs office, has has been involved with deploying capital for. And it means something on the international level too, which is where I want to round out this conversation because we've talked about Europe in passing. This is really a global market we're seeing form. And I have seen headlines like China poised to lead on the hydrogen economy because they're investing a lot in this technology as well. So, Rachel, how would you frame up what the competition looks like in the hydrogen space? Do you see there being nations leading more or less and there being winners and losers in terms of who kind of develops and owns the best technology in this sector? I think this is a great question and really complicated. You know, hydrogen in many ways is new, right? We've been using it in our economies, but in such a niche role. And now this whole kind of concept and prospect for an international trade of hydrogen for a widespread hydrogen economy is so new that it's really hard to anticipate what the dynamics are going to look like. Indeed, the international interest in hydrogen has been rapidly increasing and now even more so in light of the Ukraine war, where Europe has quadrupled its hydrogen deployment goals as a means to reduce its dependence on Russian gas. This has propelled even more interest in hydrogen as an energy security tool and so on. So certainly seeing a lot of activity 
with some countries leaning into their abundant renewables to showcase themselves as potential exporters of hydrogen. And those are Chile, Australia, more and more Africa is joining that exporter sort of uh, clan because Africa has abundant renewable energy and, and bland and so on. It could produce really cheap green hydrogen. And then you have kind of the more importer regions, you know, that's much of Europe because it doesn't have much of that space to produce all the hydrogen needs and Japan. So we are starting to see, you know, dynamics clearing up and snapping into focus. But in terms of, you know, winners and losers, it remains really unclear. So as we close out this conversation, what do you think is one thing our audience should keep in mind as they think about hydrogen going forward here in the U.S. or as it relates to the international dimensions? What's one thought you would leave them with? I would leave them with the thought that this is a new and exciting technology. There's great potential here to support decarbonization goals. But there are a lot of risks and a lot of challenges, and we need a lot of safeguards to make sure that we're leveraging hydrogen, but also minimizing its risks. So what I would like to see from the U.S. Uh, efforts, but also global efforts, is this growing recognition that we need to be careful, that we need to set those safeguards to leverage hydrogen's potential. So, for example, we need those very strong standards on hydrogen production. That's absolutely critical. And we need that investment focus on those really hard-to-electrify sectors and an avoidance or a minimization of using hydrogen in those sectors that can be just done better. And then finally, on the international angle, because the trade, you know, hydrogen is being poised as you know, a great traded commodity, I do want to also stress on the need for approaching the infrastructure issue very carefully, in particular as it relates to pipelines. And, you know, the whole import-export dynamic that remains very unclear and that could rely on assets that are quite risky in pipelines. So we need to be very careful and study the issue further. So a lot of excitement and it's great to be excited about that. But I also do want to leave on this note of caution that we need a lot of safeguards and we need to focus on those. Some real things to consider as we talk about this exciting new landscape. Less than 1% of the world's hydrogen comes from renewables today. We'd have to see that massively shift if we really want to reach our climate goals. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us on this podcast episode. Really appreciate you walking us through it. Absolutely. Thank you both. And uh, looking forward to discussing some more. Yeah, thank you, Rachel. That's a wrap for this episode of Political Climate. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, we love it when you leave a review. So if you stick around and tap five stars or leave a comment, we'd really, really appreciate that. Thanks so much to our editor, Kyle McDonald, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano with Canary Media. I'm Julia Piper. Till next time.